Hello, friends. This is a serialization of The Scarlet Godwins by Anton Matins. It's the second of the Otto Loser Mysteries, brought to you as a podcast by Migration Books. In the United Kingdom, in 2018, prisoners were entitled to write letters to their solicitors on as many sides of blue-lined A5 paper as they liked. Letter 1. Even if you ask me what time it is, I get annoyed. I don't need counseling, nor nothing like that. But when I was twelve, they give me a clock with alarms on to make me go to school, because I was too fucking lazy. Soon as they turned their backs, I smashed it. I might be fucking lazy, but I ain't fucking thick. First I stamped on it, then I chucked it in a bin. These days, what the time is don't mean nothing. Not unless it's dinner time. But you'll grant this much. I never done well in school. I couldn't even read clockwork till after I ran away from my fake dad to live in Albert Square, London. Don't ask about school. There's fuck all to say about those shitholes. I hate it. I done no reading. I done no writing. I done no testing. Teachers loathed my guts, which made it evens. They told I was up to no good. They didn't get that wrong. There was fighting, there was sexing, there was boozing, there was drugsing. To this day, I can smell the fucking bogs, which was utterly vile. The bogs were so rank in the schools they stuck me in, even staff stayed away. It was in the school bogs I learned everything. There was lessons how to stay top of the pile. There was lessons how if you don't kick and punch better than everyone else, you will get yourself flushed down a blocked lav in no time. And nobody will hardly never find you, not unless the council inspectors turn up with their masks on. Do you have love issues? I bet you fucking don't. I bet your sort has schools where they do love lessons. In my schools, all we got was lav lessons. I will stick my neck out and hazard this, though. I don't know nothing about what love is, because I only went to lav lessons. Only, trying to get some is like trying to win a million on the scratch cards. You can piss it all the way, and then fuck all happens. Do you do scratch cards? Have you seen how it don't matter how much you splash out on them, you don't never get nothing back? Will it stop you buying more? No, it won't. Does it sound like you've been hooked, lined, and sinkered? Yes, it do. Not me, though. When it comes to being addicted, what I will say is this. I like the prizes I can lay my hands on. Crack was always something there was plenty of. 
Mr. Furness says I got too many triggers. We was nattering. I goes, what do you mean, triggers? He goes, when you talk about school, it's like you're in traffic doing too many revs. He says he can see the fumes coming through my ears. He says I should mind my fucking French. Only Furness is from Glasgow, so you won't have pity, because his French is almost as good as mine. What I suppose he means is, thinking about what happens to me in my bygone days sends me in such a strop, I lose my pose. Do you do that when you wear a mask? Only, when I think of all the shit I forgot, mine drops off. My heart rate bubbles. My hands go clammy. Furness knows I can be brutal then. I don't just say French words. I break stuff. So he slips me fags, which ain't part of the rules, but Furness needs to be pally. The thing is, when he says I'm a fucking poser, he's got a point. I might shift through the days with smooth surfaces on my face, but that ain't nothing like the wretch what goes to bed at night. I stay up most hours. Do you? I don't do fuck all in bed. I listen to noises. Cars going by. There's whispering. Sometimes there's shouting. I stay wide awake. I never did like dreaming. Do you know what? I hate it. People say when you dream, it's about what scares you most. I lose stuff in my dreams. Now I suppose you want to know what it is I lose. Cause your sort is nosy like those pit bull dogs. Right. Here's one dream I get too many times. I'm on the street. It's one you see prozies in, smoking and waiting for sad blokes with bling. It's past bedtime. There's no one out anymore. All there is is rows and rows of brick houses with black windows. There's a street lamp. But this one ain't orange. It's blue. I jogs towards it. When I gets there, I see my face in a window, only... This is the thing. I don't have no fucking hair. The top of my head is gleaming white. What I think to myself is, hang on a minute. Why am I not bothered about losing all my hair? Until I think of something even worser, so that it don't make no difference if I've been turned into a skinhead or not. Because now it's like there's something foul and rotten standing right next to me. There ain't nothing I can see, but it's there all right. It's crouched in the black. I don't hang about. I run like fuck. Do you have that? When shit happens, like losing your hair, then something even more shit happens, so losing your hair don't seem half so bad. Only... I'm running again. I'm always running. After that I wake up in a sweat fit. It's like I've been sprinting on the sports field. I stay where I am, and I say out loud, thank fuck for small mercies. 
This dream comes most nights. It's the same over and over, and every time I wake up on my back, I'm gasping and mostly saying words Mr. Furness would rise his eyes at. Last night, though, I did not say one French word out loud, not even one that was whispered. What I did was, I thought in my head, thank fuck for small mercies. Why so, I hear you ask. I shall tell then. It's cause I promised Mr. Furness I might stop blaspheming in public. Now, you will think, when you're in bed, you ain't in public. And I will grant this. But my mouth is so fucking foul, what I need is practice, so I can tone it down. That's why, when I jolt myself awake at night these days, I will only ever think words like, thank fuck for small mercies. Did you know, our father who art ain't too keen on profanities. I do try to rid myself of this habit. Only, it ain't my fault how words come shooting out before I can stop them. Anyways, my vow to Mr. Furness don't count, cause I never swore on the holy book, did I? And you will grant this much, thinking stuff in your head ain't the same as saying it out loud, cause thinking it in secret is technically doable and fine. So long as no one can hear, I will think things like, it's only a fucking dream. I will think, it never fucking happened. I will stop scratching my arms. I will let my toes uncurl. I will listen to the cars go by. After a bit, my nighttime goes from sticky to tickety-boo. My sweat is dried up. My breathing is regular. Trouble is, though, this wears off much too soon. It hardly leaves memories. Lying in awake all night, you could get desperate for more of them tickety-boo moments. Do you know what I mean? Just like you could get desperate for the joys chemicals give, so long as you're willing to invest a modest sum. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, there ain't time for none of this shit-chat. You're thinking, there's things to do and ointments to meet. Well, wait right there, cause you need to hear my whinge. If I tell you my dreams, or how I cope with the fucking shitstorm that's happened, it's cause you need to know the state I'm in. That way, when I start saying how I ended up like I am, you will know what the fuck I'm on about. What I want to know is this. Why do they call it social care? Whichever numpty thought of calling it that needs their brains throttling. What they give me in them days never come close. What they give me in them days was served up like cold fish. Yes, some of them ladies from the social might fret, only they go home at night. You don't go home. You go wherever you get plonked. In all my years of placements, what kept me from being even more out of order than I actually am is something you might want to let sink in. It was never the real me in care. I wasn't who they thought I was. I was someone completely else. Hang on, though. 
Don't go thinking she's a schizo. I know what it's like being examined. I know what catiapine tastes like. I'm not talking about fucking voices in my head. Sorry for technically breaking my promise again, but being told you're a fucking schizo really does wind me up. So don't do it. What it was, was, I never knew my parents. When the social took me away, I was only a baby, still in my cot. Nobody said why they done it, but one thing is for sure. The life I lived is not the life I should have lived, and there's more to it. For a few months, before the whole sorry state I'm in begun, I had the life I thought I lost. What this means is, I got to be the someone else I really am. Beyond her ninth birthday, there were no photographs taken of Charlotte Godwin as a child. How could that be, I remember you saying. Telling you the story was just the beginning. From the day she was born, every other stage of Charlotte's early development was recorded. As far as I could tell, the photographic record of her life was resumed in late adolescence. She was born on the 29th of March, 1989. I counted 13 pictures taken on that day. I assumed they were taken by her father. Two were of her mother, sitting up in bed in a hospital. The rest were unconventional, to use a neutral word, extreme close-ups, mostly of Charlotte's neck and hands. We discussed these photographs, too, because they seemed to predict something about her broken-apart life. The effect of so many close-ups was that her face was never quite whole. The baby was asleep. A plastic wristband issued by the hospital confirmed the date. It was as if Edwin Godwin wasn't so much overwhelmed by the headiness of Charlotte's arrival in the world as he was captivated by the minute details. It was the wrinkles on his daughter's neck, her slit-shut eyes, the snub of her nose, her puckered mouth. Going by the photographs dedicated to her childhood that I saw, it seemed as if Charlotte went on to be loved and well looked after. There were photographs of her as a toddler. There were others of her learning to walk. There was a picture of her attempting to climb a tree in the garden of the family home in Cambridge. The one I told you about where she has a pink plastic donkey in her mouth. The second I saw it, I thought of you. 
long before I knew anything about you being in London. It really was like a premonition. There was an especially endearing photograph taken when Charlotte was about five, standing next to her father. The top of her head reaches to his belt. Charlotte had her primary school uniform on. She was holding her father's hand, biting her lip. I told you about her only living relatives. Jack was her father's brother. He was an investment banker, retired now. While Charlotte was in school, Jack and his wife and their children lived just north of Cambridge, near Huntington. It was Jack who refused point-blank to talk to me. By degrees, though, Charlotte's cousins, Ralph and Amelia, did open up. They were the ones who let me see the picture of Charlotte's childhood. It was early on that I became interested in Charlotte's poems, for my own reasons. I never got access to the family papers. There were some letters, and of course the notebook she'd been using since 2016. I told you about her companion, Louise Gross. There was also Hugo Timlin. Hugo's recollections helped to build a more detailed account of Charlotte's formative years. The way you were able to puzzle together the mystery of what might have happened to her made me proud. I don't mind saying the spark of ideas and the energy that came with them lifted me out of myself. Having connected in that way, having connected in that way with you, I feel the need to share the unfolding of events with you again. I can think of no better way of preserving the part you played and cherishing it by sharing it in this way as a message to you. I may also be able to make some sense of it. Charlotte developed her wayward independence early on in life. She was an only child. She liked to tell everyone she was happiest when she was alone. She played with the word solitude in many of her poems. It seems to me that the more isolated she became, the better her poetry got. She once said there was nothing more profound that could be shared between two people than a poem. In more ways than one, this idea turned out to be remarkably prescient. She hated groups, we know that much. She found the small-mindedness of crowds irritable. Yet she was envied, not just for her appearance, which was striking, but because she insisted on doing everything her own way. You may think I have this problem, too, of having to do everything my own way. Some would call it strength of character. I'm assuming you'd call it pig-headedness. Whichever it is, we would have to say that Charlotte was stubborn enough to value and nurture it. Louise Gross didn't get to know her until much later. She believed her friend was courageous. Courage came as naturally as the envy it would elicit. Her preference for solitude was never the result of shyness or introversion. Charlotte was fundamentally confident, Louise said. Even as a child, she could handle herself in a confrontation. She once told Louise that when she was in primary school, she was forced to defend her father from the taunts of a group of older girls. I don't think I told you this. The older girls surrounded her in the playground. 
Charlotte stood up against them because they were teasing her about how her father glowed in the dark. The background to this was that Edwin Godwin was part of a team of engineers monitoring a new power station at Sizewell, a few hours' drive from Cambridge. The work would eventually turn into a long-term contract. Rather than disrupt his daughter's education by moving house, he decided to commute. During the autumn and winter months, he would abandon his trip home and stay for two or three nights each week in a bed and breakfast. This custom of staying away from home began to creep into the spring and summer months. It created a remoteness between Charlotte and her father that would erupt as resentment in her dealings with others. Why resentment, I can't say. All I know is the marriage had its problems, and you may well have been right that Edwin was physically abusive. Louise felt sure that Charlotte had been afraid of him. The fact is, the taunts of a few older girls in a school playground was enough to put her into a rage. The fighting was so severe that a policeman, who must have been passing on his beat, ran into the playground to break it up. Louise first met Charlotte in the summer of 2010. They met in London. Charlotte was more or less your age then. She was in her second year of a bachelor's degree. She was so beautiful that Louise, a mature student researching for a doctoral thesis, told me she felt intimidated. Nevertheless, the relationship developed, which is not something Charlotte would normally have let happen. Although they remained close, Louise said she was never able to win Charlotte's confidence. What she felt was that Charlotte needed to exclude what happens when a friendship deepens. I'd forgive you if you thought I had this problem too. Before I went to hospital, I would have believed that avoiding friendships was perfectly normal behavior. As far as Louise could tell, her new acquaintance seemed socially active. There were no signs of a tendency to be reclusive. We speculated that she might have used the range of activities at her disposal to spread herself as thinly as possible. This wasn't a bad guess. Beyond her studies, Charlotte participated in drama and poetry groups. She went to political rallies. She liked cycling and rock climbing. It could well have been that her commitment to a multitude of activities at the expense of anything in particular is what allowed her to function in a comfortably detached way while maintaining ties with people. It's safe to say that all her connections with others were formed, with the proviso that her independence of mind meant there could never be any genuine or long-lasting commitment. That was the troubled essence of Charlotte's life. It may be that she was aware of it as a kind of disability she had, one haiku she wrote during her university years seems to expose it as a failing. It plays on the paradox of love. It's still one of my favorites. This place is empty. Knowing I have nothing, it is all that I love. but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back. 
The only childhood friend able to talk to me about Charlotte's teenage years was Hugo Timlin. They went to the same primary school. I didn't talk to you much about him. He was in the year below Charlotte. He didn't actually know her in primary school. But there was one occasion, early on, when he happened to meet Charlotte in the company of her mother. This was probably just a few years after you were born. Let's say the summer of 1997. The primary school was holding its annual sports day. Hugo had lost his skipping rope. He was told that without a skipping rope, he wouldn't be able to enter the competition he'd been training for. Nobody had a spare. He was in tears when a kindly mother came to him and offered him sweets from a bag. He remembers seeing Charlotte for the first time then, through his tears. She was standing next to her mother in her gym things, looking at him strangely. This early memory left two impressions. The first was a lasting appreciation of the genuine charity Charlotte's mother showed by offering Hugo sweets in his moment of need. He remembers not quite managing to stifle his sobs as he reached into a paper bag packed with wine gums. The second was a feeling of outrage when Charlotte said to her mother, he's always losing things, you know what he's like. In Hugo's retelling of this, Charlotte's comment was uncalled for. There's a sense in his story that she was already capable of experimenting with cruelty. He said Mrs. Godwin rolled her eyes at him after Charlotte spoke up. Hugo remembers stuffing a handful of wine gums into his mouth. He told me he might have limited himself to just one had Charlotte not been so nasty. He dared to look her in the eye, he said, as he chewed defiantly on his mouthful of prizes. It's unlikely that this first meeting would have made any impact on him, though, had the second one not taken place just a few years later. Hugo classifies this even now as the second time he fell in love with Charlotte. I should add that by the time they were in college together, Charlotte's parents were dead, and her sense of solitude was already well established. Mm -hmm.